This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Welcome back. I'm Matt Considine. In our last season of The Bag Drop, we uncovered the untold stories from the PGA pros, superintendents, architects, and operators who make it possible for us to play the game we all love. To kick off our new season, we turn the mic to our members and ambassadors to show you how the community itself might be the best part of golf. Hey, Craig Mikoski. Welcome to the Bag Drop Podcast, my friend. It is a pleasure, an honor to be here. This is probably the, uh, this is definitely the first golf podcast I've done. Usually people just want to talk about beer. And I'm assuming you're going to want to talk to me about beer also. So beer this, angle. Is, uh, this is going to be fun. They're pretty much the same thing when it comes down to a beer <laughs> podcast, golf podcast, just people going into like deep, deep levels of interest for their you know favorite things. <laughs> I yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll. Uh, I, I think uh, if we can keep this to hopefully three or four hours max, that'd be good. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Everyone, settle in. Uh, let's start with golf, and then we'll get to beer eventually. But um, I saw you guys went out yesterday. Had a little spin around, you know, your new local uh, local hang of Bobby Jones, the the nine hole golf course there. How was that? Yeah, Bob, Bobby Jones is cool. So I, I didn't know the Bobby Jones, uh, what most people know here is in Atlanta. When I, when I speak of Bobby Jones, most people um, that are from here remember it being an 18-hole course on uh, a piece of property where you could fit about 12 holes. Uh, so most people are, are hitting, hitting into each other, and there's a lot of fours being gone around, a lot like the old course, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, what they've done to it, it's really cool. They shut the whole place down, I think, for about, about a year, year or two years. And uh, they developed a nine-hole reversible course. So uh, depending on what day you go out there, it can be played in one direction or the other. And so they have two separate flags, massive greens, because everything's a double green. Um, so yesterday, uh, actually, we had, a, I think, uh, Ryan, who, who's down here uh, helping you all out, he had about 150-foot putt from the other side of the green. <laughs> uh that, that had about eight breaks to it so uh yeah real cool track um and uh, they really encourage uh walking now especially after the pandemic and and uh, people got kind of used to not having carts anymore yeah i remember when it first opened somebody said that they had to take a cart uh, like the first i think kevin moore was down there playing with you guys and, and they had to so that's no longer the case yeah, so what when they first uh, opened the place, they, when they opened the nine-hole course, they um, uh, there was no price difference for walking or riding. So it's like, well, if there's no price difference, I'm going to take a cart. So you got a bunch of people that were out there, you know, basically doing donuts on the fairways and not not knowing what they were doing. And and uh, so what they what they do now is every everything is now a walking rate. And if you want to take a cart, it's like twenty five bucks for you to take it for nine holes. So obviously nobody takes apart. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I totally appreciate it from a golf course standpoint, the revenue line of, of carts like, and, and I sympathize with that, but it's just more enjoyable to walk and And for like the bigger picture, people need to be out there exercising. Golf is still, it's not, you know, it's a sport. And so we should sweat a little bit. It's not going to kill anybody. It's actually yeah. going to you know, make you feel a lot better, but uh, I'm happy to hear and, and that. It has, 
it has not uh, disrupted the uh, the amount of tee times that are getting taken up. I, I mean, when we were out there yesterday, it was back to back to back for some. So there is there is no shortage of people wanting to go out there and walk nine holes. Good. I I, I like hearing that. It's a lot after uh, you know COVID now with things reopening i feel like i've heard a lot of the other way where now places people are showing up for their two times that they were walking at uh through throughout the you know pandemic which we're still in but uh they were walking and now that carts are permitted at least in illinois where we're at they they are having to take carts again so i i, I like hearing something the other way it sounds like you know it, maybe this like whole thing has opened our eyes to kind of the simplicity uh how good simple can be at a time Oh yeah. And whenever I'm out there walking with everybody, basically everybody has said the exact same thing, especially with it being a nine hole course. And I get 18 holes, you know, especially for somebody who's not used to walking or doesn't have a push cart, that can be a little bit strange, but for a nine hole course, it's a great two hour walk. And nobody, nobody that I've played with at least has complained and everybody seems to be liking it more. You burn a few calories and you make more room for beer. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And my, my push cart's sweet because I have an integrated uh, cooler into it. So it's, I, can, I can go for a couple during nine holes easy. <laughs> Wait, do you, you invented this yourself or it wasn't bought? No, it was on there. I can't, uh, off the top of my head, uh, it's Caddy Tech. Uh, it's, uh, I can't remember what model it is, but they have a little, you can fit about, I don't know, maybe four beers in there. It's a little cooler. Four beers and a couple cubes of ice. Love it. Love it. Um, so... Let's talk about the brewery. So those that don't know, uh, Craig is the, the owner and brewer for Round Trip Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. It's going to be New Club's second market in Atlanta. Uh, I, have a, I have a very strong feeling that this is going to become the unofficial clubhouse for many of our, of our members. Um, and, and things look awesome, man. So I, let's start with construction on the building. I, I noticed uh, that you guys are still pushing through through all this, how things going, what's... Uh, what's kind of an update yeah yeah well, we're still pushing through it because there's we kind of hit the point of no return <laughs> you know i i think a lot of guys that were thinking about starting a brewery and then this came up uh they definitely put the brakes on things but we were about when this news broke we were about 50 percent into the build um but uh obviously this just really threw a wrench for us so we've we've uh slowed down construction but now Probably in the next two or three weeks, we're going to be full, uh, full go again. So we have about eight, uh, I'd say about eight more weeks of active construction before we can apply for our certificate in occupancy and then, uh, and then get the brew house churning and then probably another four to six weeks before we have enough beer on tap to open the doors. So we're looking about an October, November opening at this point, which we, we thought it was going to be a, an August opening before all this happened. So, um, and, and honestly, that's that's probably better that we didn't open in August uh, during the middle of this. So uh, hopefully, it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise. But yeah, we're we're excited. It's a um, it's uh, I've been doing this for for twelve years. Um, it's all I've ever done. Uh, I graduated from University of Georgia in '07, moved to Denver, and uh, got a job brewing um, at one of the oldest brew pubs in the country there at Wincoop. And uh, moved around a little bit, went down to, uh, actually I spent some time up in, in y'all's neck of the woods in Chicago. There's a brewing school up there. Uh, during my four years in Denver, I took a little hiatus to Chicago. Uh, and then we had a partner program in Munich. So 
I uh, did brewing school up in Chicago and Munich during that time, and uh, then went down to Texas for seven years, worked at uh, Rar and Sons and um, uh, Sellis Brewing Company in, in Texas. And then I uh, had an opportunity to come back to Georgia to start this thing up. And uh, it's, uh, as you know, starting a business, there's a lot more to it than, than you thought. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of hiccups that you've uh, come across, uh, especially with doing something that not many, you know, maybe um, this model isn't really being done. So you're kind of the guinea pig for it. Um, so uh, the process of build out uh, in general has been, um, much more involved and interesting than uh, just working for a brewery. There's, there's so many aspects to it um, uh, from working with the city to getting permits done to uh, ordering equipment was probably the, uh, was easier than I anticipated. All they care about is getting some money and they'll build whatever you want. But the permitting side, uh, getting stuff through city, uh, city, county, state, federal government, is is difficult mostly because there's very little communication between all of those parties on the other side fortune for you you don't really have to build a structure <laughs> so uh, it's a little bit different for you well, but i'm sure you've had your your similar headaches i always think, find it funny that you know i have so much more respect now for the entrepreneurial community and what people do but i you know, I always thought we'd be talking about big ideas and head in the cloud type stuff. But every time I get together with someone like yourself, who's building a business, it's always talking about things like, you know, a QuickBooks and accounting and oh taxes. Yeah. How, how do I pay? Do I pay taxes yet? We don't have revenue. I guess we do because I'm getting paid a little bit. Yeah. It's not sustainable. <laughs> it's, it's always the, the far less sexy stuff that like is, oh is my gosh. we got to figure out. But yeah, uh, everybody's like, Oh, so you can spend a lot of time kneeling down your recipes. I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but all that stuff we do, we got to do it so that we can do the things that we love, you know, which is, yeah. is probably in your world, brewing beer and in my world, it's getting people on the golf course. And, yeah. Brewing beer and making people happy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the name. So I wanted to ask you about round trip in terms of the, the, the naming convention. Where, where does that come from? Well, um, so a few things to that. So first of all, names are really hard. Uh, <laughs> most of them are taken, uh, trademarks and copyrighted. And, uh, so we probably, I mean, there, there's a group of, uh, a group of us that got this started and we had a huge text thread going for, I don't know, probably six months, just trying to find a name that we liked, that fit us, um, and that wasn't taken. And with 5,000 breweries starting up in the past five years, I can imagine how many names have been taken. It's not only brewery names, it's, it's also the beer names. Um, so each individual beer name, not every single beer name is trademarked, but if a brewery has a beer that is kind of their flagship or something that they want to um, protect, then they, then they throw a trademark on that as well. So we're, we're going up against probably 20,000 uh, trademarked names in the beer industry. So finally, we found this name, uh, Round Trip, and I thought of it during a, uh, I, was, I was actually my last two weeks at my old job, and they said, Craig, you don't really, you don't really have anything to do right now, so uh, we need some beer to go out to West Texas. It's a, it's a five-hour drive um, uh, one way, get a Penske truck and take some beer out there for us. I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds like fun. I'll, 
I'll have some quiet time and, and drive out to West Texas. Uh, so when I was in there, thinking a bunch of names, and I was like, well, I'm taking this round trip out to West Texas and back. And, uh, you know, that, that just kind of stuck. And when I, when I started thinking about it more and more, it fit us on a personal level because we left Georgia, went to Colorado, Texas, back to Georgia, start this where we're originally from. Um, and so it kind of fit, uh, fit that criteria of us personally making a round trip for us over these last 12 years. But also, uh, we wanted to incorporate um, travel into uh, what we were doing. Um, and so we were trying to find a name that, that fit that. And obviously, round trip does people, people taking flights or train rides around trip. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of, the, I guess, the core of, of how we came up with it. Um, Six, six months long process of uh, fiddling through things and finally came across it. And, and then we thought we had it and then we didn't <laughs> because somebody actually had been in round trip. So there's a brewery out in California, Anaheim Brewing Company. Uh, they had two months before we tried to put our trademark on it. So we, we thought of the name, nobody had it. And then all of a sudden a trademark came up and out of nowhere, oh no. And uh, we were starting to think of other names and, and I was just like, hey, man, this looks like a smallish brewery, kind of second career, husband and wife team that started up this brewery. Uh, it's actually Anaheim Brewing Company, uh, but round, they had round trip double IPA. So I just emailed the guy. And I'm like, hey, we really like this name. It fits us. Can we come to some sort of agreement here? And so he was really cool. And the, and the best thing about the brewing industry is how cool everybody is. I mean, very, very willing to share information about beers or, or whatever it is. So we had a you know month-long email discussion back and forth and basically just came to the conclusion of we're never going to sell this beer outside of Southern California. If we can just sell, if we can have the rights to in Orange County, you can have it to for the rest of the world <laughs> for all we care. So uh, we wrote up the documents that said they could sell it in Orange County and we'll never sell our beer in Orange County. And I'm not ever planning on selling our Breweries beer in Orange County, so it worked out. That's great. That's that's really cool. That they were cool. That's really cool. They, that yeah, they were, they were cool. That the beer industry it, it really runs. The, I mean, just because we all speak the same language, we all know what each other are going through um, and how hard it is. And and he didn't want that to be a roadblock for us. And so we have plans in the future to hopefully do a collaboration beer together and and keep the good feelings going. I've always wanted to make a trip to West Texas. I've had friends that it's uh this. it's a different world. <laughs> it's like going I mean, if to you want country. to play golf in the wind, it's probably the place to go. <laughs> There's no trees. Roy it's, uh, it's, it's, it's oil dominant. If if oil is good, the, the feelings are good out there. If oils are down, if gas is a dollar fifty like it is right now, uh, things are a little bit different. But if if you ever watch the show Friday Night Lights, uh, uh, I, I would recommend reading the book if you haven't read the book. Um, uh, being a Texas native, it's uh, it's uh, especially the book is pretty two T of of the culture out there. Give us some of the the beer names that you guys are are uh, concocting right now, getting ready for the opening. Oh my gosh! Um, so every time I think of one, I immediately go to my phone and my notes and just write it down. Even if, it, I, even if I think it might be taken or whatever, just to like have it on the back burner, hopefully it's not. So uh, I think most of them are, are train related. Um, and honestly, I don't publish any of them uh, until until they're trademarked. 
<laughs> smart man. <laughs> very reason of hey, this is a really cool name. We should because I'm just not not even gonna go there as far as the exact names until until we know what's going on. But I will say um, there's there's one name I'm really hoping that we do get. Um, it's uh, I had a when I did study, I did study abroad in New Zealand. Where it, and that's where I originally discovered craft beer when I was 20. Um, but uh, we had a, a 19, we bought a 1987 Mitsubishi um, uh, hatchback. And there's there's a Japanese name to it that uh, that was made for the cars that were built over in Japan for, for that model. And I'm going to use that model name on, on one of my beers. So that's a pretty cool story to it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. You got you to capture it when you get the inspiration, man. There's been so many things I've thought yeah. of that I haven't written down that they're just. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and it's great having a phone in your pocket so you don't have to write it down and, and then lose your notebook somewhere. Yeah. My, my Evernote uh, app is just like uh, a world of what half-baked ideas and, and naming conventions. Yeah. Um, so I love the travel theme because I, I think, you know, <laughs> our, our, our golf society is growing locally now with Atlanta being our, our second official market. You guys got a nice crew down there that's, that's kind of doing what we get to do here in, in Chicago, which is get together a little bit more frequently to play some cool golf courses and hang out. But I always uh, notice that the conversation does gravitate to travel. And even in our you know, messaging app that we use for, for members, everyone's talking about going new places and seeing new things. Um, I remember – you and you when you and I connected and we can maybe talk a little bit about how we connected to, to begin with but um I think you had just made a trip to, to Scotland a very special place to, to so many of us that have have been over there but I, I remember your your experiences being pretty cool uh, I wondered if you could share some of that with us yeah uh, my experience um first of all when I, when I travel um so I've done a few few different trips uh, that are kind of like this, uh, similar to the Scotland trip, uh, mostly mostly European trips. And when you just throw a backpack on, and you see, you ch- almost challenge yourself to see how you can sprint by. Sometimes you get the best experiences. Um, after after college, I uh, did a, I guess a four week trip. Um, through Germany, Austria, Belgium, and um, and then just flew out of Amsterdam. And I I spent on average fifty dollars a day, and that and that included everything. And that was food, lodging, bus fare, what whatever I had it is. My budget was about fifty dollars a day. And I mean, this is like if you are if you really want to live it up. I mean, you're getting a donor. You're getting a donor kebab. I mean, spending five bucks on lunch is kind of a big deal when you're spending fifty dollars a day because you're probably spending about ten bucks on your bed. Um, so, and that, and that, you know, that's where you meet the most interesting people and experiences come up, and people want to help you out. You know, I, I, uh, there's some nights where I spent zero dollars because I go on Capturefing.com and find some Portuguese guy, and. Um, Nuremberg that said I, I could crash on his floor um, and he had an air mattress and like I paid him back by making him breakfast tacos the next day and I mean that I mean that's where you get the coolest experiences it's it's uh, you know it's travel 
um, has been promoted for, for a lot of people and a lot of people's minds. It's how do we, how do we treat ourselves and how do we blow a bunch of cash? And, and I think at the end of the day, and I, and I've read this too, is if you take a trip like that, you almost dread going back to normal life. Whereas if you take a trip to where you have just an awesome experience, you actually take that experience and put it back into your normal life. And it kind of changes who you are. And, and that experience kind of lasts for, for years. And so I, I took that same mentality to, um, to the Scotland trip. And obviously I wanted to play some of the big name courses. Um, you know, so, you know, the courses that you always hear about and see on TV, got to play Carnoustie old course. Um, but, um, uh, the cooler courses were the ones where I got on a uh, golf now. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, so I went to, uh, and first of all, when you make this trip, you can do it by yourself or you can, um, you can try to find somebody to take it, to go with you. And if you go, there's, there's two ways to do it. When I made one, one of those European trips I did by myself and the advantages to that is you don't have to ask anybody else if you want to go do something, you just go do it. So that, that's kind of cool. But the, the golf trip, um, I would, I would definitely recommend trying to do it with at least one other person. First of all, to get some cool pictures taken on the golf course that you can't take if, if you're by yourself. And, and so those, those are really great. And also just having a beer at the end of the round, you know, the hang uh, with uh, one or, or multiple people is, is a good thing. So I was lucky enough. I, I had actually booked this trip as a solo trip um, got starting off. Um, first of all, it was kind of last minute. I, I decided to do it 10 weeks before I actually left. I bought the plane ticket and then figured out the rest later. Um, and then about eight weeks before the trip, I was like, man, there's one guy who I think could keep up and, uh, has, I know that wants to do a trip like this and it's, uh, my God brother will. Um, so we lived, uh, we lived close by, uh, in Fort Worth, um, before I came or went down to Austin and then eventually Georgia. So I knew he wanted to do the trip and I knew that his, his work schedule was pretty flexible. So I just shot him a text. I'm like, Hey, I'm doing this trip. I'm going, um, if you want to come, come. And he's just like, I'll uh, book my ticket tomorrow. Like it wasn't hard to convince him. So, um, so we met up in Philadelphia, took a, took a, uh, airline trip or, or uh, took a trip over landed in Edinburgh. At, um, we were a little bit delayed. Um, we landed at about 10 a.m. So I landed at 10 a.m., threw on golf clothes, got on a train, and uh, on the way up there, I got on golf now and booked this course called Kinghorn. In this place, I bet we're the only tourists that have been in this place in the last six months. Nobody goes and plays this place. <laughs> but it is on a little uh, seaside town um, just across, um, uh, I don't know, if they, the Firth of Forth, the bay right there across from Edinburgh town called Kinghorn, little fishing town, got a cool little beach right there. Um, but I paid 15 pounds and, uh, I, I told the, the, the lady at check-in that is our first time ever being in Scotland. We're so excited to see She gave us a push cart for free. So just right there, that's the goodwill of when you're on the ground floor, you're not spending a bunch of money. People just give you stuff because they think it's cool that you're just going out of your way and trying stuff that nobody else does. So this course it's a uh, it was originally designed by Ulton Morse 
Um, so right out the gate, we're playing an old time Morris course. And I just think that's the coolest thing in the world as a golf nut. And I'm playing some course that nobody's ever heard of, but it's designed by Tom Morris. So, um, so we get on the first tee box. I immediately hit two balls out of bounds because I just got off of the plane. There's no driving range at these places, as you know. You've been yeah. over. They don't care about warm out. You just get out there and start hitting. But the nice part is that the first hole usually is looks kind of like a driving range. And then, <laughs> and then by the point. third hole, this whole, yeah, this course has so many quirks in it. I mean, it's like playing mini golf. I mean, the th- the second hole, it's a par three. But you can't see the flag or the green or anything. They put a little post out there for you to shoot at. And uh, the third hole, you have to – it's a par three, but you have to carry a stone wall. Um, the uh, sixth hole is a 170-yard par four. <laughs> and we didn't realize it was a par four until after we played it. And then we're like, man, that was the hardest par three and then we're like, oh, my God, that was a par four. <laughs> we're not like, supposed to aim at the green here. There's, what, you kind can't of defense, hit the green. what kind of defense is there to make a You have to aim yard. 30 yards right of the hole because the, the green is a sliver in between a creek and gorse bushes that if you aim at it, you're not hitting the green. If you hit the green, it's going to ricochet off into the gorse bush. I've never heard of that. That is no. quite a feature. Yeah. Uh, fifth hole, you know, stone wall going down the left side. Sixth hole. The sixth hole is the hardest drive in Scotland. You're, you're, and we had direct headwind. Out of bounds left, slopes off to the right. You know, if your ball happens to hit the fairway, it's going to ricochet off in the right side. So really, yeah, yeah, there's no way that you're going to make par on this hole. Uh, and then on, we get on the back side. The back side isn't as, as interesting, but – you know, you're crossing where your par threes are crossing over fairways. I mean, this is a par 62. We thought it was going to be a nice, easy little walk warm up, and then they ate our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, I mean, as far as travel goes, uh, I, I love doing stuff like that. That, I mean, you tell, you, you, you try to share with other people, and you tell them you're going over to Scotland, and, and all they know about is, they, you know, they know about Old Course, Carnoustie, uh, Nearfield, Glen Eagles. I mean, you don't have to play those places that have just the time of your life. You can, you can play stuff like Kinghorn and kind of make, kind of make your own trip that isn't, isn't the travel itineraries that you see on these, these big name travel itiner- or, uh, travel websites for Scottish golf. I, I love it. I've been thinking a lot more about it because now that we've kind of lost our travel for the time being, or at least postponed. But, um, you know, I think the best we're doing that we're doing a big bucket list trip with new club members. Like everybody <clears throat> wants to see Royal Dornock. Everybody wants to play the old course. Like that's, that's through and through, but the trip you're talking well, about. Those courses are great. I know. Oh yeah. You can't deny it. No, no. Best in the best in the world. Like go, 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 go see it too. But the trip I I've been telling people to go do is, you know, either travel solo, like you're saying, or go with one other person, maybe a foursome and, and make sure it's a group of just people that are up for whatever. Cause you don't know what you're going to discover. And uh Kinghorn's a great example, man. I've never heard of that. I don't even think I've read a lot of nobody's right. I mean, I was, I was in St. Andrews and, and more, more goes into the, you know, the whole story, obviously the whole trip, 
But uh, when, when we were in Philadelphia, we our flight was delayed an hour, and so we went over to to the bar to just hang out before the trip got going. And we actually ended up having beers with two international members of the, the St. Andrews Club. <laughs> you know, just by happen, just by being friendly with people that looked like they were golfers. And we, we ended up having dinner with them and a couple of their Scottish buddies uh, that were members of the club. And we told them they played Kinghorn. They're like, there's a golf course in Kinghorn? I mean, these guys are local St. Andrews guys. They live 20 miles <laughs> from Kinghorn. They didn't even know there was a golf course there. Oh, that's awesome. I bet you Jim Hartzell, if there's one person that may know it, it might be our guy, Jim Hartzell. He may know. Well, I, and I saw that, and I think he was going to do a trip that kind of aligned with your trip, but he was kind of solo for a few days, and he was actually going to play Kinghorn. He had a day pass to go play, and so I was I was uh, messaging him back and forth, and he was super pumped about it. And I mean, uh, and, and I need to pick his brain. I, I'm excited to talk to him. I haven't met him yet, but um, – I mean, these courses that if you if you see a course over there that's a par 65, don't be scared of it and just embrace it because those are going to you're going to have probably a, a super cool, quirky course that you might talk way more about than your time at Carnoustie. I wish we had you know, <laughs> your point about bringing things back to your everyday life. You know, I there's a there's a theme of this with travel like yourself. I'm sure you've been all around the world seeing different breweries and I'm sure you've taken some influence. I know for us, you know, seeing the golf societies of Ireland and Scotland like that, that we are bringing that back golf course architects, like another member, Craig Holtum talks about playing these places that are par 65s and, and trying to bring some of that back. Um, it's, it's, insp- it's, it's inspiration. I think that point that you said of, you you can bring some of these things, but it's not about escaping. It's about actually bringing it right. into your life. That's that's really uh, that really struck me. Yeah. But uh, and and I listened to your your podcast obviously with uh, um, the Sweetens Cove uh, uh, owner Rob Collins. Rob, yeah, Rob, and, and he talks about uh, I think a lot about you know trying to change how people receive golf, and I think it would be a really it'd be a hard um, I guess sell to uh, you know an investor that's saying I'm going to build a really cool par 65 course. I mean, it was hard. I'm sure it was hard for them to put a nine hole course in the middle of Atlanta with Bobby Jones. Uh, hard enough, but if you say I'm, I'm going to build the coolest par 65 course ever, I mean, it's going to be a tough sell. And I and I really think that's just probably the reason why we don't see more of them. It's not that they're cool or or that people wouldn't want to play them it's it's really just can it convince the money that that uh that it should be built yeah. and back then they weren't they didn't care 100 years ago 150 years ago they just wanted a they wanted a golf course in their little village that they could play every day yeah uh, just there's there's the simplicity of it you know it, it works um i remember one thing when we first connected you told me you liked playing golf in bad weather yeah, <laughs> and I and I knew I liked you right away because what is it about bad weather? I mean, most American golfers in particular, everyone sees the four. It's one of my pet peeves is people that are like just stalking the weather apps and yeah. will not book a tee time unless it is seventy five and sunny. Yeah. And like so, so when I got on the phone with you, and that was one of the early. I think we were talking Scotland weather, maybe where it's always crummy. But um, you, you said I like playing in bad weather. What is it about bad weather you enjoy? 
Yeah. Well, let, let's get there's two uh, there's two ends of the spectrum for bad weather. Uh, so growing up in Texas, really bad weather is over 100 degrees and no wind. <laughs> that's bad weather to me. Yeah. If it's over 100, that's bad weather. So, but um, you know, uh, and the wind tends to blow. Uh, and you know, growing up in Texas, so I played a lot of a lot of wind. And and when I was living in Colorado, sometimes in the afternoon, it, it could come hard off the mountains. Um, but it, it makes it more interesting, you know, when when you have to play a shot twenty yards to the left and and bring it over. I mean, that changes the golf course immediately. Um, not necessarily makes it more. Def, uh, you know more defenses to the course but if you if you just see a course and the only time you play it is in 70 degree weather it can be kind of um i don't know there, there tends to be a, a boredom to it a normalcy um and if you play it in all different kinds of weather uh first of all with with worse weather there's less people out there so it can be a little more i guess enjoyable because you're not pushing somebody or nobody's pushing you um but uh, it, it changes the dynamic uh, of the game. You have to think about things like: Is this ball gonna? Is this ball gonna spin on the green um, how I normally see it spinning, or is a little bit of rain has that has that changed the spin, or is it changed the spin of the greens, or however? And obviously, when you're getting uh, in Scotland, when it's you know 30 mile per hour winds, I mean, you're not only having to worry about how your ball is going to change in the air. I mean, it, it moves the ball when you put it. Uh, and you have to figure out a different way to stand on the greens and stabilize yourself. And so it just it, it's, uh, it's not only physically exhausting, it can get mentally exhausting, and it, it just keeps you, uh, I guess, engaged with the course. I call that uh, variability, you know? And, and I think if you think about – the thing that makes golf so different than, than so many other points is how you never hit the same shot twice and, and the variability of it, you're, you're the way you adjust to the wind or the spin of the ball or, or the conditions um, or how you're thinking that day, how your body's feeling that day. Like it's always variable and, and that makes it more interesting. It's more fun. I think that's, I'm with you on that, uh, on the bad weather piece, man. That's some of mm-hmm. my favorites, favorite rounds are in less than, a, than ideal. Yeah. Yeah, unless and, and uh, downpours are bad, though. I had, I, we, the first time, so I got to play the old course twice. Uh, uh, once when I woke up at 2.30 a.m. To, to get in line, and the other time with the, with the uh, St. Andrews Club member. But the first time we played it, um, it, was, uh, it was windy from us today. And then we got a little bit of sprinkler. And then uh, by hole 16, it was basically unplayable. So, you know, if you can't putt the ball because you're, you're going through a, a half-inch water, at that point, you may want to get off the course. Yeah. To, to the brink where you're, you're, uh, it's unplayable, that's where you got to draw the line. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, where did you get started playing the game? Let's go back. Uh, let's, let's, let's reel it back into when you got so interested because you're obviously very passionate about, about golf. Where did you start? Yeah, I, I grew up playing. Uh, I think like a lot of people, my dad got me into the game. And really my whole family, all the cousins, uncles, everybody was interested in the game. Um, grew up in Arlington, Texas. And my grandpa um, actually uh, designed um, – the first country club in Arlington, Rolling Hills Country Club. 
um, he really never talked about it. And I don't even think he's really listed as the original architect on anything, but it was like a story that came up. And I guess they were, they were, they had started a country club. Arlington was starting to grow. This was uh, before the Rangers got there. And so they started a country club, but then they decided they wanted a golf course. They were talking about bringing in all these different architects and, uh, and you know, how much they were going to cost and everything. And then my grandpa, I think, just stood up and said, I'll design it. I'll do it for free or, or something like that. <laughs> or maybe he charged him 50 bucks, but never actually took the check. Um, but uh, so, so I started playing there um, growing up. Um, and then got in a little bit, I think, into like the, the PGA junior stuff and some of the junior tournaments. But I, I was never good and really never took it seriously. I, I was I was a lot more focused on football, basketball, uh, other sports. But um, when uh, when organized um, sports dropped, when, it, when I got to college and I wasn't playing um, any more organized sports, um, I, I started playing more. Um, uh, we have, we have a great, uh, golf course at university of Georgia and they, they've actually updated it since I was in school and they, they started having some web.com tour events out there or whatever it's called now, corn, corn ferry. Um, so, uh, we, we had a great golf course out there. I would play that about as much as I could and started to get more into it. And then I, I think just gradually got more and more into it as I, and started playing less pickup basketball and, and things like that. Um, and then in, in Texas for a couple of years is actually a member of a country club. And we talked a little bit about, about that. And, um, um, and I was playing a lot, but, um, the problem that I had with being at a country club is I'm already paying a lot of money to, to be there. It was really hard to go explore and, and go check out other courses because I'm like, well, I could go play another course, but I'm already paying for it. So I'm kind of double paying for, for golf. If I go play anywhere else. So that, that brought in a little bit of the, um, uh, for me, even though I was playing a lot, I wasn't engaged because I was just playing the same course over and over again. So um, after I left the country club, I really, I didn't play hardly any golf when I was in Austin. And I started playing a little bit more golf when I came out here to Georgia. Um, and then uh, it, it really, now, now that I did the Scotland trip, um, it really has changed my whole way of thinking about um, what golf is and what we should be looking at as far as, you know, do the amenities matter at all? Um, um, uh, course design, I've really picked up a huge appreciation for course architecture and design and, and how that's done. And I've, I've really, um, I, I never liked them at first. Uh, I've never really enjoyed playing on them, but now I enjoy I enjoy even less playing on courses that go through housing developments, <laughs> uh, courses that are just there because they, they help sell real estate. Um, so course architecture, I mean, these past six, six to nine months after, after going on that trip is I think reinvigorated, um, my golf game, not only how, how I go out on the course and play, but, but, um, just how I, I view golf in general. Yeah, there's there's a a difference, you know, probably between like-minded and closed-minded, right? And being open to going and seeing new places, being open to playing with new people that I think we've discovered through just just doing it with New Club is that 
<clears throat> you don't know what you like. You got a hunch on what you like, but there's a lot of different golf holes out there. There's a lot of different golf games. There's a lot of different ways to enjoy it. And it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be that, that one thing every single time. Like I know yeah. myself, I, I grew up as a very competitive uh, golfer. It was just obsessed with score. It was all about that. And there's some days that I'll, I'll still go out there and still try to, you know, really play a tournament or, or compete, whatever. But there's other days where I'm going to a completely new golf course and I say, okay, I want to hit some different shots and see some different, uh, some holes, just really to kind of appreciate either the design of it or uh, just have a match. Or some days I just want to be totally social and I want to have some beers and, and relax and hang out. But it's, I, I think just like, you're saying with going with your travel comments, golf is, is such an opportunity to do that, to really mm. go out and figure out what is it I like, what kind of golfer do I want to be today? Yeah. And, and you, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about other people, definitely learn a lot about golf courses and architecture. I mean, it's, um, I wish I would have started doing it earlier. Yeah. And the architecture thing, I think is some, something that is extremely undervalued and something that, I, you know, I hope the USGA pushes more and, and, uh, and gets people to appreciate more because I think a lot of people just think, Oh man, it's a Nicholas course. It must be out of this world. And like, they don't even know what that means. Like what, what are the, what are the features that he's putting into every course that he designed or, you know, it's a Ross course. And he's like, Oh, so it's the green complex. I mean, you know, and, and you know, go, going back to travel and just, course architecture and, and design and everything and, and when when you start getting into it everybody always say well it, uh, most of it stems back to the old course and a lot of different features I mean 18 holes that wasn't a thing until the old course and one of the coolest things that you can do over there is honestly not just playing the old course what I what so I actually walked the old course three times so you have to play it twice and then it is, uh, I think a lot of people know, uh, you can't play it on Sunday. And for, for everybody that's like, oh, it's such a bummer, I can't go play on Sunday. But what we figured out is, first of all, you can go take your picture on the bridge when it's not crowded on a Sunday morning. Uh, but also, we, then after we took our picture on the bridge, uh, we were playing an afternoon round that day at the castle course. So we were going to take the morning just to hang out a little bit. We took our picture on the bridge, and then we started just walking up hole two. And then kind of pointing out, you know, things that we, you know, where we hit the ball because we didn't really remember the first first round because we were in a daze after waking up at 2.30 a.m. So we looked, you know, we're checking things out. And then we just kept walking. We walked the entire – we walked out to the loop. We walked everything. We looked at different features out there. And we were the only people out there. We had the entire old course to ourselves on a Sunday morning. There wasn't – the only person out there, there was one guy riding around a court doing – course doing some course maintenance but to have the entire old course to yourself to look at the architecture and think about hey if this because you know you can you can play the course in reverse and so we started looking at the other tees and how how would you play hole 12 in reverse and see how the the admiral bunker comes into play when they reverse it and you can't see it you can't you because you're going so fast and kind of being pushed when you're playing it that it's hard to notice all the features when you're playing the course. So to go out there on Sunday, it, it, if I, I recommend this for anybody going back, if you're, if you're in St. Andrews on Sunday, book a morning or an afternoon round and then just go walk the course. It was honestly probably the coolest thing we did the whole time. 
and just that walk, just doing that for two hours, that alone, I think, uh, really um, spurred this whole, you know, uh, looking into course architecture more and kind of re-looking at some of the courses that I play, have played, or, or am currently playing. That's, that's really cool because you get – you miss so much, like you said. I know the, the two times I've played it, I definitely – it's built up in your head, you know, it's the the Mecca of oh, golf, yeah. the home of golf. And it's, it's a bit overwhelming, honestly. Uh, you'll especially be when you're out well. on the loop because there's balls flying everywhere out there. <laughs> it you is play, a little you're bit. crossing, you're crossing each other a couple times and, and you're just trying not to get hit by a ball, much less hitting your own ball. That's so true, man. It, it's, it's such a different experience, I think, than I had originally built up, but I've never done what you're saying. I've never actually walked out and that would be it makes so much sense you don't have to worry about your own game you don't have to worry about balls no. flying. you just get to just appreciate to take it the in. course and what's out there yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take your advice there and do that next time um what is the so you i know you got a, a few, you know, 12 years uh in the business of brewing you got a <laughs> brewing science deg- degree this might be a stupid question but what is the old course of beer like is there is there like a yeah, so where where did it all originate and change and and yeah. kind of been modern I guess um because yeah it, there's probably a lot of parallels that can be drawn to the beer industry and the golf industry and and a lot actually I mean because because like be you know like golf golf has been around before the old course I mean everybody thinks that the old course that's where golf started but there was a form of golf for a long time just not not in a uh, structured way i guess really uh, people are always hitting balls around and hitting different targets and, and playing on the same land that they're playing on now uh, and like beer beer's been around for you know thousands of years but pe- people didn't know what yeast was <laughs> they kind of like put put a pot of sugar water out or you know uh, put some put some grain in a pot of water and did a dance around it and all of a sudden, they had a drink that they uh, that they felt really good after, and could could uh, you know run into a wall. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, beer beer's kind of modernized in, in the same way. So so really, the place where uh, a lot of um, I, I think in my mind, just doing a lot of German beer study and, and doing um, doing some of my brewing degree over in Munich. I mean, Munich's kind of the place where it was modernized and. I guess, um, uh, structured, uh, closer to what it is now. There, there's a brewing there called school there called Weinstephan. Um, and, uh, I want to say that they started using, they were the first brewery, I believe to start using hops. And, and so it's a brewery, but it's also a, uh, it's an academy, uh, not just for beer, but for a lot of food science things. Probably the, the equivalent um uh to the old course when i was in college i was 21 or two i think i just graduated college but i was backpacking through europe and we showed up in munich um you know sleep deprived and just be like you know we the only way to do it yeah, I don't, like I don't think I really slept a night when I did that same but trip. <laughs> we had we had like three three nights in Munich. We said, you know what, we should probably just take it easy when we get in. You know, find find the, a hostel, get a private room, maybe you know, pay five extra dollars for that, and uh, and just just take it easy. But we got off the train, and it was it looked like Oktoberfest, but it was in June, I think. Yeah, June, and it was their it was their beer, beer purity law party so i guess yeah. 
It was like Ryan the, yeah, bingo. Yeah. Ryan yeah. And, and so we get off the train and people are just celebrating. There's all the beer carts everywhere. We all just look at each other or the three of us look at each other. Like, yeah. That's that nap ain't happening. We're going to <laughs> dive in. But yeah. I just, I just, uh, yeah, I remember it was a, you know, the purity law, but I felt like that beer over there is, it has some type of purity to it. Like, isn't there some regulations about what type of water has to be used and what type of yeast and everything? Well, Kind of. It, it, it's it's loosened up a lot since uh, uh, EU um, started up because before that, I mean, beers that weren't brewed by the Rheinheitsgebot standards weren't even allowed to be imported into Germany. So, like, you couldn't get a, uh, I believe you couldn't get a Guinness in Germany or at least in Bavaria uh, before the EU came in and started taking away some of the regulations. So uh, the Reinheitsgebot is basically only four ingredients can be used if you want to call it beer and put the label on your bottle that says it's Reinheitsgebot, which if you are a German beer drinker, you don't drink things that uh, don't say Reinheitsgebot for fear that chemicals are going to be in them, which isn't true at all. It's just, it's an old mindset that they've just fallen into. So the four ingredients are... Um, Water, hops, barley, and yeast. And yeast was actually added later on because they didn't know what yeast was when they first came up around high school. So if it can't have any more ingredients in that, and there's also some other special stipulations about adding in uh, minerals and when you can do that and all sorts of things. But now there's actually breweries that have uh, started brewing in Germany under like American styles, making big hoppy beers and making some funky stuff, but they just aren't allowed to put Ryan Heitschkebot on the label. And so I, I think the mindset for Germans has changed a little bit. They're a little more open to that stuff, but they're very, very stuck in old times that German beer is the only beer and the best beer, and that's all we drink. And if the Ryan Heitschkebot isn't listed on my bottle, then I'm not putting those chemicals in my body. I won't have your dry hopped beer, sir. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's interesting, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the beer is better over there. I, I've actually had some some really bad beer that's brewed under Reinheitsgebot, kind of industrial-type beer that's brewed under the Reinheitsgebot law. But it's, uh, it um, you know, there's, a, there's definitely standard there because of that, and for the most part, the beer is very good. It's just, it's fairly monochromatic, you know. You're not going to find a wide range of beers like you do over here. Nice. Um, the, I'll, I'll be remiss to not mention this because we were on Slack in uh, February May, or January. I whatever. love Slack. Slack is awesome. It's something That's else. Got me, Slack has gotten me through the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you got to socialize somehow. And the conversations in there, they're great. But uh, somebody asked, you know, is, is our ambassador, Craig Mikoski, is he, is he teeing it up on the PGA Tour today? And it was a screenshot of your last name playing a PGA tour. Oh. So give give us some background on who that was and, and uh, yeah. that it wasn't. Uh, so, so one of my cousins is the, uh, the founder of Tom shoes. Um, so, I mean, when this thing first started, I didn't even think it had legs. I mean, my cousin didn't, it wasn't in the shoe business. He didn't, he didn't know what he was doing. He, he took some trip down to Argentina and all of a sudden he wanted to start making shoes. Uh, I actually, uh, when I was at Georgia, uh, uh, kind of a side story, I had a, uh, a website called freestylewalking.org. And if you dig really deep, deep into the internet, you might be able to find a video of me freestyle walking off of 
up and doing some dumb stuff. You should have told us that. You're going to regret saying that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, He actually reached out uh, in his early, early days, and and, uh, he wanted to team up a little bit. And I I believe that I filmed the first Tom's commercial through Um, (laughs) freestylewalking.org. And I'm pretty sure that video is still up, and I think Tom's actually even puts their name on it, which is kind of cool. Um, But uh, through that, um, I, and I don't know if anybody remembers, I mean, if you're a golf fan, you may, may remember, but the Masters, the Masters, I think in 2006, 2007, maybe, maybe a little bit after that, 2000, between 2006 and 2008, there was a commercial for Tom's that AT&T put together for them. Um, AT&T called, called my cousin after they kind of picked up on his story a little bit. And uh, they asked him what his carrier was, and thankfully he said his carrier was AT&T. So uh, they teamed up and put a commercial together for them, and, and that really launched um, Tom's uh, through getting free advertising during the Masters, and I think they aired it for at least six months on you know on national TV after that. Uh, but through that, um, my, my cousin's a, a golfer, and uh, AT&T, uh, I believe they're still the sponsor of the, the the pro-am at, at Pebble Beach. Yeah. Um, so they they asked uh, my cousin Blake if he wanted to play in the AT&T pro-am. He's like, well, sure, yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. Uh, so he's been playing in that, I believe, for 10 years. Um, so he's had uh, – Vaughn Taylor was, was his pro that he used for a lot of years, and then it was Sabatini for three or four years, and I, I can't remember the name. Sorry, off the top of my head of – we played with this past year and he's made the cut out there probably I think almost half the times that he's played which is from what I hear like kind of um unheard of and I think because of that they keep uh, uh asking for his handicap and, and bringing it down to make sure he doesn't make the cut too many times um but unfortunately I've never gotten out there to, to go watch him play it uh, my dad's gone out I think most most people in my family have gone out to at least see him play a couple rounds um but uh hope, hopefully i get i'm able to get out there and watch him watch him playing it live but he does get some tv time about every about every other year he happens to get on uh on one of the broadcasts especially if he if he's playing pebble uh during saturday round um that's gotta be but, uh, this, he did not make the cut this year uh his pro played really well the next week um but i, I think his pro had a had a tough day or a tough week yeah, I, I that's got to be such a strange experience for you know an amateur. I don't know what his what his handicap is, but to be gearing up for your game to be on national television on a very you know big stage of Pebble Beach. Um, yeah, I mean, I get nervous when like uh, Kevin's watching me and we got five bucks on the match, and I <laughs> go into a freeze and I don't know where the target is. <laughs> so uh, you know, luckily at least he has a pro partner to fall back on. Yeah, that probably. Um, I'm sure that helps out a lot, and I and I believe they move up the tees way up for those those amateurs. So, um, well, that's I, cool. Hopefully, not too many people get dinged in the head. The, the, obviously, the uh, the golf bug runs in your family, but it sounds like the entrepreneurial bug certainly does. And it's cool that you guys have uh, that shared kind of giving back to community. I've I've always been impressed with Tom's just from a standpoint of how how successful they've been able to be with making such a big impact i mean they mm-hmm. were kind of the t- i mean there's so many businesses started after them that went that philanthropy route 
because uh, it works. And, and I thought that that's just awesome. Yeah, I think, I don't even know how many, I mean, it was a big deal. I remember when they gave away their like million pair of shoes and I don't even know. I mean, I, I, I want to say they're up into the hundred millions because, because, you know, you got to think with shoes and, and this was a big reason why he started it. You know, he, he felt that um, um, the model wasn't sustainable if uh, to try, you know, to try to get uh, shoes on, on kids' feet that need them to be able to go to school. Um, the model wasn't sustainable to just go out and get donations and then just give a kid a pair of shoes because they're going to need another pair in, you know, in a year. Um, you know, I have a six-year-old. I mean, I think we're buying, you know, new pair every six months right now. Um, so the model, he figured out the model could be sustainable if he sold them. That way he, he had a steady income stream coming in and, and, and then to attach, say, you know, uh, and it's a big ask for every single pair of shoes that they sell, they were going to give away a pair. I believe that models change a little bit over the years, but the, the core is still, is still there. Cool. Um, what, so when we're coming down, we'll be down hopefully for a grand opening of, of yeah. some sort, but what can we expect from, from round trip? Uh, I know the, the, the timing sounds like fall, but, um, what are some things you're excited about? <clears throat> um, so, so what we specialize in is, uh, it, it's kind of a new take on putting a German style brewery together. Um, a lot of times when people put together German breweries, they get very pigeonholed into doing the classic examples and, and kind of pigeonholed like what Munich breweries go through. You know, you're, you're kind of expected to make certain, certain beers. And I think we will, but, um, you know, I, and, I, and I love those classic examples. But at the same time, I'm, I'm an American brewer and I've done a lot of different styles. And I want to see how I can push those styles in different directions that they, they either um, – haven't been pushed in or um, something that hasn't been done very often or do it better than what, uh, what I've seen from, from other breweries. Um, uh, just cause I, I like to play around and, and I think there's a lot of different ways you can combine maybe even Belgian and German styles together to, to make something completely different. Um, so that, that's kind of the focus of what we do. And, and, um, also, just making sure we have a great taproom culture. I think uh, I think that's very important. Um, and why craft beer has really exploded how it has is because people like to come in and and visit visit a place that it's made and see the vessels that that it's being made in, and also meet who who makes it. I mean, it, it's such a cool job. It's it, and there's very few jobs out there you know, besides like professional athletes, uh, that people want to come up to you and, and really just talk about what you do as an occupation for hours on end. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really cool deal. And I, I still get a kick out of giving somebody a tour that's never been on a brewery tour before. Well, sign me up, man. I can't wait to be down there. I know our, our members that are in Atlanta are already, uh, you, you've, you've had some kind of previews for them. I think you've, yeah, we, you know, we, we have like half walls are up halfway and tanks are in there, but not in the right place. But I had a couple bottles of some stuff that I, that I made at the house and we went over there and I, I believe the beers that I poured are the first beers I've ever poured for anybody at that bar, which is kind of cool. 
Um, but you know, I, I can't wait to, you know, hopefully there's a lot of crossover between, um, uh, you know, a couple of things that I love in life, golf and golf and beer and, and get y'all in and do some cool events. And especially with Bobby Jones, five minutes away, um, we could have some great meetups where we go play nine holes and have some beers up the brewery afterward. Love that setup. And can we get, can, can I put in a request for some uh, reserve space on the wall? You know, you like you, when you walk into your, your local Applebee's, they got the high school kids on, <laughs> on the wall. Can, can I get like, just, you know, maybe when the first Atlanta club champ uh, championship occurs, like maybe, maybe just a little spot for a name or two. You know, club golf society. It's either going to be like a plat, you know, we could go small and have some kind of small plaque on the wall. Or we could have something, some obnoxiously large trophy that's like six feet tall. You know, I, I'm actually, I'm a terrible better and, and, you know, like say my knees shake when five bucks is on the line. But if there's some cool trophy that I can hold up after the round and maybe drink out of, man, that would be sweet. Oh, dude, I'm, you're t- again, you're speaking my language. I think we need to get as, as big and obnoxious uh, as you can. I like that a heck of a lot more than, than money. I mean, something, something that you can't even take home. Like it's just, it's state, it's stationary. It sits yeah. there and you got to put your arm around it and take yeah. a picture. I, I'm all for it. Well, Craig, man, this is awesome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Uh, thanks for all you've been doing for the golf society down there and um, just appreciate you being a part of the membership. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, I'm excited to see uh, how, it, how it grows down here and, and how we piggyback off what you're doing in Chicago and then make it our own a little bit at the same time. Same here. If you got your, your brewery pals up here, we're still looking for that home. In oh, Chicago. man, there's some great breweries up there in Chicago. So I, I like to uh, – like any, any, any come to mind are your favorites? You know, and, and we talk a little bit about this uh, with the golf courses going out, exploring new golf courses that are a little bit quirky, right? So I like to explore quirky little breweries around town. I think a lot of people do. So uh, one I went to last time I was up there, uh, it's called Dovetail. Um, and, uh, I believe that's the, the name of it. The Dovetail. It's a, it's a German or they're like European inspired brewery. I think and, I've heard of that. And, uh, they're on the North side up there and it's, uh, they try to mimic, um, what, ha- how people made beer a hundred years ago and bring in, um, I guess a little bit of new age stuff, but, uh, they make some really, really cool stuff. And the tour, the tour is actually one of the coolest tours I've ever been on, especially for a brewery that just opened. That's awesome. Well, I know, I know, you know, a lot of those businesses are, are in a tough time right now. So I think, yeah. uh, you know, we yeah. want, as soon as things are opening, which should be soon here, we're gonna, we got to find some places to go frequent. And I, I love doing that. Just, just the same message, man, go see a new golf course, go see a new restaurant, go see a new brewery. Like that's, uh, that's the variety of life. Yeah. Craig, thanks for thanks again, man. We'll talk to you soon. Cool. Thanks, man. See you.